podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Sandy Peckinpah. For over two decades, Sandy worked behind the scenes developing stories with her husband, a successful television writer and producer. Her secret dream was to create her own body of work, but she doubted her abilities. One day, her calling became greater than her fear when her daughter was born with a facial defect. Sandy wrote a fairy tale to raise awareness about birth defects, and the book was well-received by hospitals, clinics, libraries, and schools. It was recorded by Little House on the Prairie actress Melissa Gilbert, music by the Moscow Symphony Orchestra, and was nominated for a Grammy in 2009. Sandy's most recent book, How to Survive the Worst That Can Happen, has won eight awards, including the Reader's Favorite Book Award. Her articles are featured in Thrive Global, Medium.com, and Huffington Post. Sandy is a former radio show host on AM Talk Radio in Northern California and a frequent broadcaster, sharing her passion for helping women rise up through life's difficult times. Today, Sandy loves helping women bridge the gap between a desire to write and actually doing it. She teaches a five-step creative process that has helped numerous women finally achieve the dream of writing and publishing their own stories of resilience. One of her clients wrote, I didn't know how important my life events were until Sandy gave me a new perspective. Through writing my book, I realized I have a legacy that needs to be shared. Sandy's website is sandypeckinpah.com. Here is the interview with Sandy Peckinpah. In your own words, who is Sandy Peckinpah? Oh, what a great question, because I think we all have so many things that compose a whole full life. And I like to say that I'm a woman, I write and I speak about personal development and creativity, and I help encourage women to write and speak about their own stories of triumph because we've all got them. It's true. So true. So before we talk about uh, creativity and resilience and some other thoughts in between uh, about writing, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off record. The first one for you, Sandy, had to be this one. What does it mean to be a human being? Well, I am 100% certain that we are here to experience as much life as possible. And being human means that we don't always have all good experiences. We have a blend of challenges, triumphs, happiness, joy, despair, things that happen, health challenges. I, I don't think any of us are immune from... From being human, I, that's the best way I can explain who I am as a human being. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Is the experience of being a human body, right? It's challenging in many ways, but beautiful in so many other ways. Yes, and you know, I'd, I'd like to add to that, that when we look back on our lives, I think also being human, we have the capability of looking at our life experiences from whatever perspective we choose. And that's a very human trait, I think, that I don't, I'm not sure animals will think back to the time that, you know, maybe they hurt their foot crossing a bridge, but humans will look back on life events and, and pinpoint them and they'll either label them 
in a certain way and remember them in a certain way, but it is perspective and choice. And, and I love that aspect of being human. Yeah, I hear that a lot, that we can choose all the time. It's not like we have a, a destiny, although I do believe that there's something about destiny too. Do you believe in destiny now that I... I do. I absolutely believe in destiny. And I have many stories where destiny <laughs> destiny is a fact in my life. And in fact, if I may, I'd love to share my story about my destiny as a writer. And it came about in a backdoor way, I like to say, because my husband was a writer for television and film. And he has since passed on, but he lived a very full life in the television industry. And I was beside him every step of the way. And I had the sheer joy of working with him on wonderful TV shows and movies like, well, the movie for Disney that he did was Man of the House with Chevy Chase and Farrah Fawcett and Jonathan Taylor Thomas. And then he did a, a television series called Beauty and the Beast, which is one of my all-time favorite series. And um, while we were working on Beauty and the Beast, he was supervising producer and writer. So as my part of our creative marriage, our creative partnership, what we loved doing was sitting down at the end of the day, going over his work, going over his scripts, talking about characters, letting characters evolve, throwing out ideas for new uh, storylines. And all of these things were a huge part of our journey together in the entertainment industry. And so uh, while he was working on Beauty and the Beast, which was just a show that I so loved. We talked a lot about what it was like if you would be faced with a facial defect. What would it be like to be deformed, to be have a defect that would be so shocking that you could not go out in public? Because the story, Beauty and the Beast, in this case, uh, for the CBS television show, he lived underground underneath the city streets of New York, the Beast, and his name was Vincent. And Catherine lived above the street. She was the district attorney, and she was injured in Central Park one night, and the Beast scooped her up protected her from the people who were attacking her and took her below the city streets to help her heal. So what happened was she had her eyes bandaged because she couldn't see. and But she listened to Vincent talk to her every day. He read Shakespeare to her. He read, he told her stories and she fell in love with a man without ever seeing him. So this is what my husband and I talked about is what would that be like to be not know what people would think of you when they first see you? Well, the beautiful part of this story is that Catherine, when her bandages were removed, she was already in love with Vincent. And the story continued from there, their, their beautiful love story in the streets of, of New York in the nighttime because he still couldn't go out and be exposed to other people. So through these conversations, I was pregnant and I was so excited to have my third child, a daughter, the night she was born, I could not have anticipated that she was born with a facial defect. And she was born with a cleft. And the destiny part of what I want to share with you is that when I saw her for the first time, it was almost as though I already knew her because her, her mouth looked very much like Vincent's with a split in the center of her mouth. And um, it was very similar to what we had been talking about all of these nights on our patio. What would it be like to have a face that was very different? So at that point, I had only helped my husband write. I hadn't written myself, but I was so afraid. Could I write? Am I good enough? But my, my fear was not as great as my desire to help my daughter. And my desire was to give her a story, her own story, 
a beautiful story that could help her and empower her with words that would make her feel strong and beautiful no matter what, as long as she was going through the operations to correct her cleft. And believe me, today, she you cannot even tell. But through the surgeries, and it was several years, she had to answer to people. So my book, it was the first thing I ever wrote. It was destiny because I already knew what I needed to write about this story and what a beautiful story it was. And it was, I'm very proud of how well it did and, it, and what it did to raise awareness for um, people with facial defects. Or any other kinds of imperfections, right? Physical imperfections. That's right. In fact, I call it the beauty of imperfection. And uh, it, her, the book was called Rosie the Imperfect Angel. And uh, I'm, it's out of print now, but I am so proud of it. It actually went on to be recorded as a CD by Melissa Gilbert from Little House on the Prairie and uh, the Moscow Symphony Orchestra did the music. And I'm proud to say it was nominated for a Grammy in 2009. So it was one of those moments that destiny seemed to just keep grabbing hold of. Right. That is funny, my Sandy, about perfection. I don't see any perfection in nature. It's actually the imperfections that make it so beautiful. And we are not apart from nature. We are nature itself. Yes. You know, that is such a beautiful observation. You're so right. You are so right. It's the, um, you know, the tree that looks unusual that mm. you're attracted to right. or the flower that has extra petals that mm. you don't expect. Mm. It's all of those things. You, that's a beautiful observation. I keep thinking about this and, and comparing that in a way with the human understanding of ourselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's an interesting thing to see that we don't see that, that we are nature itself. So it's diversity, just being different. And that is perfection in itself. Right, right. It's so true. So you mentioned earlier choices, that we have a choice. I believe that too. And at the same time, destiny, which I do believe too. How is that possible to have a destiny, but at the same time, be able to choose? You know, I think when you have a calling, like I did with my daughter's story, I knew that I had a reason to write this book because I wanted her to start kindergarten with a book that would empower her and make her feel special. And that far outweighed any negative that I could see that, you know, how difficult it was to get a book published. And I was so lucky to find one, a publisher, she was a publisher of um, educational materials and how lucky I was to find that person. But all along, I just kept saying, but this is not only my de destiny, but this is where my destiny intersects with my daughters and has the potential to change people's lives. And so when you look at the response to your calling, and I think so many people think that a calling has to be one giant thing for their entire life. But what I see is that your destiny and your calling are actually a series of choices. And mm. they might even come as a whisper, like, uh, you know, you might be thinking, oh, I should write a story about the time that my grandmother taught me how to make apple pie. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe just a, a simple story. But why are you being called to write that story? Is it because your grandmother is calling you from above and saying, you know, don't forget me. And guess what? The neighbor next door, maybe that's exactly what they need today, today is one of your apple pies. And, you know, maybe the story about how you found the recipe for that apple pie and you labored with your grandmother and peeled and heard her stories of childhood, maybe that would make a great article for a blog and, or maybe a chapter in a book. All of those little things are whispers of your potential destiny and what that could mean to other people. Yeah, this is refreshing to hear. So a calling, your destiny, you see as a compilation of choices, even if they are unconscious. In a way, we are not aware of them, but we are making choices every moment. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Goodness, Valeria, you know, I, uh, I can tell you that 
as I, I was so proud of my first book. And I always thought, is there a second book in me? And yes, I did write a second children's book and it was doing well. And I thought, is this my calling? Is this what I'm meant to do to write children's books? And I was so, um, I, I loved doing it. And I didn't know exactly what my next step would be until I experienced a tragedy many years later. And that tragedy was the loss of my son. Um, My 16-year-old son died of bacterial meningitis and it was unexpected. It was quick. It was less than 24 hours from him contracting meningitis to his death. And I thought, you know, I thought I had the world by a string. You know, I thought that my life was a fairy tale, that I had figured out how to go through the difficult surgeries with my daughter and and my life. And now I'm a writer and I'm doing well. I thought I had it all figured out until the loss of my son and it took me down. And on that first day, a uh, little backstory. My husband at the time was working with a, a producer named Stephen Camel on a show, and my husband was his co-executive producer. And we knew that Steve had lost a child, but we never talked about it. It was one of those things that you know you just sort of avoided. But on the first day that when it was announced that my son died, Steve was at our house within a couple of hours, and he brought a book to me. And he handed it to my husband and I, and he said, this helped my wife and I get through the loss of our own son, Derek. And Derek had died just a few years before at 15. And he said, we kept this book and we read it and read it and it helped us. And I hope that it does that for you. Well, that book was written by the mother of a child who died It was a young boy. And I read that book as though it was the only thing that was going to save me. I read it every night. I read it every morning. I kept it in my purse. When I was picking up the kids at school and I was in the carpool line, I would be reading that book. And I swore to myself that if I got through the loss of my beautiful son, that one day I would write a book about it. And I had only written fiction up to that point. And I thought, I am terrified of writing my true story, my true thoughts, and exposing my own grief. I don't know if I can do it. And that book idea would not go away. And so this is what I'm tying back to our discussion on destiny, is that that book idea just kept calling me and calling me. And I found in my journey of grief recovery is that writing in my journal was the most helpful thing that I did. Every day, it was my place to express my thoughts, to cry, to be angry, to feel despair, to feel that God had abandoned me. And then the next day, I felt like I was closer than ever to my faith and to God. You know, there were so many things, and you can call it what you will, the universe, God, whatever it is that you believe in, you, when you are going through grief, you are looking for that thing that you can hold on to. And journaling helped me with all of my thoughts during that time. And every time I'd close that book at night, I would think, I wonder if that's going to be a chapter in my book. Well, it took a long time before I decided to write that book. I And I am proud to say it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever written because it was exposing my thoughts and going back to that grief. And it's also my proudest moment. I think. It's so inspiring to see that. I I see the courage. There's something about courage that it's just extremely beautiful to me to see somebody who has been through so much and it's still courageous enough to see, to create something beautiful and amazing, inspiring out of that. You speak of, of writing as if it's a healing tool and that's the way I see it too. Yes. 
But I do have another question for you here. You also mentioned that uh, not talking about death, when we lose someone, then it's a comfortable uh, conversation to have. And I'm wondering why so many of us are not comfortable having conversations about death. Well, I think if you're the person who has experienced death, for me, I always get nervous around the question, how many children do you have? And I think, do I want to share? Is this person the right person to share how many children I really have? Is it going to open up an uncomfortable conversation for them? And usually I will assess it. You know, if it's a, if it's a new client and we're just so excited about, you know, what we're going to be doing with their book or, you know, I don't always talk about it right away, but um, now I've written about it so much. So many people already know before they ever meet me exactly my story and, and what happened. Um, And also how it's so much a part of my creative life. And, I I think that um, those uncomfortable conversations can be more comfortable if you just look at the intention with which you're telling the story and or you're receiving the story. If someone tells me, oh, I lost my son a few weeks ago, I don't know how that person is feeling at that moment because... Um, every person's grief is different and every part of grief is different. You know, every stage of grief, meaning timeline, stages, all of it. So the best thing to do, and I've learned this because I did uh, get certified as a grief recovery specialist. Um, I was writing my book and I wanted to make sure that I knew what I was talking about and, and not give any information that might be difficult that, you know, it didn't work or or uh, that was irresponsible. And so I learned that the best thing that you can say is, I am so sorry. I am so sorry to hear that. And can you tell me about him or her, or are you comfortable talking about it? Just be completely 100% open about that conversation. Um, You know, you don't ever want to hear the things like, um, well, at least he's in a better place. Well, when people Uh, say things like that, it's hurtful because as a mother, you feel like, wait a minute, I was his mother. He was in my safe place. He was my beautiful son. Um, I, I don't want to know that he's, that, you know, he's away from me having to comprehend that in a better place is so difficult for a parent who has lost a child. And so there are all kinds of things that I learned in the process and continue to learn. And I don't always say the right thing. And I'm not always the perfect person to have that conversation with because sometimes, you know, it may trigger uh, feelings of, of intense sadness. I'm, I'm, I certainly feel empathy with other people in the same situation. And oh my goodness, if I can help, I do. I do. Yeah, and you are. You are helping so many people out there who need the help. I remember seeing somebody on the boardwalk. I am in Long Beach. There's a boardwalk around the beach. And this woman, she seemed very distressed. She was sitting on the bench. And then my husband and I were walking. And then we talked to her. I don't know how that happened, but we approached her. And she was there because there was a, uh, I think it's a, they call a... uh, memory sign that they have in each bench along the boardwalk with her daughter. She had lost her daughter (gasps) and she was so unhappy. And um, it had been 10 years. I wish I could help her somehow, but I couldn't. I didn't know what to say. That moment, the wisdom within me just had no words for it. And it was just a feeling of sadness but I think worse than that is not knowing what to do and how to help for people who are that we feel like helpless. Right. I all I had the 
best friends in the world who didn't ask me, what can I do? They just did it. And that's another thing I always encourage people. If you know someone who is struggling with loss like this, don't say, would you like me to fix dinner for you tonight? Give them a call and say, I'd like to bring over dinner next week. What's the best day? And, you know, so many of my friends would call me up and say, do you need banking done today? Can I pick up your dry cleaning? How about if I pick up your children today from school and take them out for ice cream? And then that'll give you some time to yourself. And, you know, all of these friends, they just circled me. Like there's a a beautiful story about female elephants when one is injured and they will circle her and help her with her her little uh, baby elephant if she has one. They will all circle around until she's strong enough to stand on her own. And that's the way I felt about my my girlfriends, my friends, how they circled around until I could stand on my own. And to this day, I'm still very blessed that they've remained very close friends. And and I learned something from them. I learned that I could ask for help because I was always the woman who said, oh no, I'm fine. I'm Mm -hmm. fine. Oh no, I've got this. I can handle it. I felt weak if I asked for help, but that's not me anymore. That changed my life. I realized how important it is to say, yeah, I do need help. I never heard about that before, but I have seen them, humans doing that. So that is interesting. Yeah. I so encourage people when they go through a difficult time in grieving to keep a journal. There is a professor, James Pennebaker, uh, out of the University of Texas, who actually did a study on journaling and healing. And he discovered that it is so beneficial to journal during those difficult times and that it actually changes the brain and the brain chemistry. And he, another little tidbit that I didn't realize until I read his study is that um, writing with paper and pencil is more effective during those times uh, because there's something about the connection with the right brain and the and your physical hand writing on the paper and the sound of the pen or the pencil scratching the paper, all of it is very tactile. And um, I always found that doing a, a written journal was the best thing for the healing process. But here's what else I discovered is that I help women, um, I coach women in writing their own stories. And they've usually had some sort of incident, an inciting incident that made them say, I want to write a story. I want to write a book. And so many people have said, I want to write a book. Well, what is that inciting incident that made you want to write a book? Well, I can tell you that while I was in the process of writing my book and journaling, I felt like I was going through the healing process. And I've taken several women now through the process of writing their book. And every one of them have said after they were done, you know, that was such a healing experience. And it does. It changes you when you have the opportunity to look at your life through the perspective of writing it onto paper or on the computer. Now, I write my books on computer. I'm talking journaling. I write in a, in a book. But when you have that experience to write your life story, you see it with a different perspective. You see it from a positive, a negative, and the emotions around that event. And that brings that event to life. And you have a choice as to how you want to look at it. Like my daughter's birth. Well, I was so sad when she was born, that she was born with a birth defect. And yet I was so happy to have my beautiful daughter. And all I wanted to do was protect her. But I could look at that birth from two different perspectives, the part that was very difficult and the part that was very joyful. Now I look back on her birth with nothing but the purest joy because I see it from that new perspective. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me about, again, healing and writing. Yes, yeah. I have experienced myself and I know the power of that. And speaking of joy, yeah, this is a question I asked some of my guests, so perhaps all of them that I interview about grief. Can grief and joy coexist? Yes. And that is 
the biggest shock of my life because I did not know when my son died if I could ever feel joy again. And it was, I had just a little sign of it maybe within a couple of weeks after Garrett's death. And I thought that, you know, the world is the darkest place for me right now. And I had a year old child that I was, uh, you know, still in a crib and he was in the day room next to the master bedroom. And I remember waking up one morning and every morning when you lose a child, you're reminded, oh, it happened. And it's like hits you in the gut and you and you feel you go to the depths of despair immediately because for a while you had peace in your sleep that it wasn't there. And then you remember, and it's that moment that you remember that sets the tone for the day. And then one day, just a couple of weeks after, I heard my baby boy laughing in his crib and he would sneeze and laugh and sneeze and laugh and just giggling so hard. And I walked into the day room and I thought, what is he laughing about? And it was the sunlight was coming in, streaming in through the window. And every time it would, his face, he would move his face and it would hit his face. He would sneeze in the sunlight and just giggle. And I couldn't stop laughing at this little child. And I thought after, you know, that was the first time I'd heard laughter in the longest time. And I guess you really can have joy when you're grieving. And so I've continued to think about that story and many other times that proved to me that joy's not over when you have such a tragic loss. You learn to appreciate new things and look at things differently. And you also learn as you go down the journey of grief, the ways to compartmentalize it that make it possible for you to live a good life, a happy life. And it's not that you don't ever feel the tears again because you do, and you can go there in a heartbeat. But the most surprising thing, and I just said this to a mother recently because she had lost her daughter, And I said, you'll be surprised to know that love doesn't leave when that child leaves. It's not like your love stops. What happens is your love grows, even though they're not here. Your love will be greater years from now for your child who's gone than it is today. And that's hard to believe, but it is. I love my son more today than I could have ever possibly imagined it just continues to grow because guess what? Love doesn't die, does it? Of course not. Yeah. Yes, that's beautiful, Sandy. Very beautifully said. Yes. Thank you. Do you think it's possible to prepare for events like this? To prepare to lose somebody you love? No, I don't. I think that there are things that you could probably do that I actually have practiced later in life. Like my, you know, my father was 90 and he had heart trouble. And I knew that there were things that were unsaid that I needed to say to him, to tell him how much I appreciated being his daughter and to tell him the things in our lifetime together that made me laugh, that made me happy, the things that I just remember um, growing up, what a wonderful father he was and how fun he made things and um, uh, and how much he supported me. And, you know, I went through some difficult times, but dad was always there and he was on the other line of the phone if he wasn't there in person. And so I got to tell him all of that over a period of about a year. I made a conscious effort of calling him up every time I'd have a special memory and telling him that. So when he died at 90, I felt complete. So I think that your question about can you prepare, I think you can prepare to feel complete as telling them everything that you always wanted to say to them. If you have that experience, if you have that relationship with that person, I'm not sure that it's possible for everybody, but um, I don't think there's any way to prepare for death. It's hard. It's just hard. Hmm. Yeah, but I love what you said. So in the way, way to prepare 
for death, our own death, and people around us that we love is to love even more. <laughs> it's to love unconditionally, is to show love, is to be love in a way. <laughs> right. Yeah, that sounds like a wonderful recipe. Well, I had a client who actually helped me uh, recently add to that information. She lost her husband and she was doing so well. And people don't really know what so well means to, you know, they could be at home crying behind closed doors and you don't know that. But I felt a real connection with her and we had many conversations and I said, how did you go through this process knowing that your husband was dying in the last year? And she said, I made sure that I was 100% present for him. I cut out all extraneous stuff that really wasn't important in my life. I made sure that he was the focus of every day. He made sure that I was the focus of every day. And again, she said that they said everything that they ever wanted to say to each other in that last year. And I thought, what a beautiful example of grace. That's another beautiful word. Yes, that inspires um, love. Uh-huh. Right. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so before we talk about creativity, Sandy, I have two more questions for you. What is the meaning of freedom to you? What is to be free? You know, I struggle with that sometimes. So I'm going to probably say that freedom means that you are doing and being the person that feels the most right to you. And during this time, um, when we've all had time at home to reflect, I realized that there were things that made me not free, that chained me to certain aspects of my job, certain aspects of people that I weren't really... Um, probably a, a good part of my life, people that, um, and, and then pe there were things that I was missing, connections with people that I needed to reconnect with. And so I would have to say that being free is knowing that you're being true to yourself and doing those things that make you feel complete. That would be freedom. I mean, there are so many aspects of freedom. We could talk about being financially free. We could talk about being spiritually free. But for me, it's just being who I really want to be and not compromising that. This is the only way to really live a uh, healthy and happy life from my perspective. Yeah. Right. So you say something in your book. I read some pages of your book. You said something wonderful about resilience. You said cultivate a resilient life by cultivating a resilient spirit. That is so true. Mm -hmm. Talk to me for a moment about the five-step creative process. I think that's what you call it. Well, now you're talking about my favorite thing, and that is creativity and turning your creative brain on. Because um, one thing that I always used to marvel at was the way that my husband had the ability to go into his office every day and write. And it was, whether he felt like it or not, he showed up. And I think that's what people think um, that they, they don't quite get about creativity. Oftentimes they think they have to wait for inspiration, but really inspiration is just waiting for your commitment. And I love, I don't know if you've read the book, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Have you read that book? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh, I love it. And she talks about how she feels that ideas are floating around in the universe, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, little flies or, or uh, flowers that have lost their leaves. And she said, it's all it takes is for you to capture that thought and commit to it. And that's what I learned from living with a full-time writer early on in my life was that he never waited. He made creativity an active part of every day. So 
the five steps that I created because I love, I coach women with writing the stories that they've always wanted to tell. And I developed these five steps looking at what he did to consistently turn out work and what I did, especially on my last book to finish it. Um, I finished the first draft of the book within four to six months, and then the rest of it I uh, edited, but I had the published book within a year. And a lot of times people say, oh, it takes 10 years to write a book or something, but it really doesn't. So these steps are what I developed for the writers that I work with, and they've worked so well. I'm so proud of the writers who have used this system and now have published books. And the first thing is that commitment to creating the thing that you want to do. And if your creative calling, it's a little whisper in the back of your head that maybe says, I've always wanted to paint, or I've always wanted to do photography, or I've always wanted to write a book, or I've always wanted to bake and have a bakery, or you know any of those things that that sort of whisper and don't go away. And for many people, it's a book. And I read a a shocking statistic that 81% of people in this country have said at one time or another, they'd like to write a book, but only half of 1% have actually done it. Now, I don't know if that's an accurate um, (laughs) assessment, but I would guess that the number of people that have told me that they wanted to write a book, I would say that's pretty close. And so by choosing the thing that you want to create, and in this case, we'll just call it your book, the story you've been always wanting to tell and have never known where to start. And that's by naming it. You name it first and you can call it a, you can give it a title, a working title. It doesn't have to be the finished title. Just give it a title. And the second part of this is to create a contract with yourself because that's how my husband wrote every script. He had a contract and he had to deliver the first draft, the second draft, the set of revisions, the final draft. And it was all done under contract. And he always felt that the contract held him accountable. So when I started writing my last book, I wrote myself a contract and I make all of my writers write a contract saying an approximate date of when they would like to be finished and when they would like to have a published book in their hands. So that's a really fun thing because we get to dream of what that will feel like to have the published book in your hand. And um, and then we go on to step three, which is you create a strategy and a commitment of time to make it happen. So basically you reverse engineer that date and you say, if I want a book by if from one year to to from today, um, then I have to have the initial draft done in six months. And so then we figure out how much time it takes every day to commit to writing or how much time in your week do you have to write. And so you create a, a space of time that works for you. And for me, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a, uh, so I have a full-time job. So I would come home every day at four and I'd work from four to seven and sometimes to eight o'clock. And that always felt good to me because I knew it was in my calendar and I accomplished it. So committing to a strategy and a commitment, a strategy for that commitment is to give it a time. And the next part of it, step four, is creating a ritual. A ritual is such a beautiful part of creativity. Um, you weren't born with habits. You created habits. Everybody created all the habits they have today. So true. Isn't that true? And so if you can create a ritual that creates a habit for your creativity by using affirmations or things that you do that start your creative flow, for me, I always look forward at four o'clock in the afternoon to my afternoon cappuccino. <laughs> and then I, I get my, my desk is always clear, ready to begin because I don't like a messy desk. I light a candle because I love a good smelling candle. It just feels so 
um, essential to my creative mood. And sometimes I'll put on music, but I never use music with words because that interrupts my mind. It's like my mind is competing to hear the words, and but to write words. So I need to devote myself to writing words. And, the, and I usually use music without words on Pandora, something like spa music or, or classical or whatever works. And um, then I sit down and I know that that ritual begins my creative process. And, and if I struggle in any way, I have a set of affirmations that I use before I start. And I say things to myself like, I am a writer. My book is in the process of being finished and will be finished by whatever date. And um, it feels so good to have the creativity flow. And I continue to bathe myself in creative affirmations. And then I start writing and it works. It works to have a ritual, a strategy, a contract, and a calling. And the last part of this is the thing that I think people have the most trouble with. That's step five. It's declaring yourself as a writer Mm, and or the creative person that you are, the photographer, the baker, the artist. It took me I wrote three (laughs) books before I ever called myself a writer. And I think that's the hardest thing is that we get into that feeling of being an imposter. Like, oh, I'm not a real writer because I haven't made money writing. And But even after I did make money writing, I never called myself a writer until my last book. And that was the book that I did with these five steps and with a contract to myself and every day declaring myself a writer and really starting to feel that I was doing something remarkable, that half of 1% of the people who desire to write a book never do. I only do. That The majority of the people do not write that book. And I was that half of 1%. And I was, and once I started realizing that, no, I'm not an imposter. I am a writer. I started feeling better about myself and I, my productivity went up, um, my confidence in my work went up and I felt like this is what I'm meant to be doing. And I'd like to take it back to that thing that we talked about early in our interview about, you know, when do I feel most free and uh, real freedom is when I know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And this um, declaring myself a writer and following through is when I know that I am free. I love what you said about not waiting to be creative, but because creativity is waiting for you. That's right. In a way, yeah. that's true. I'm wondering why so many of us resist to create or to be creative. Is that fear? You know, that's a really good question because, and I'm not sure I have the answer to that. I just know that I will do everything to avoid sitting down to writing unless I make a commitment to it, like I've described in these five steps. And I know that what I I observed my husband going to work from uh, you know, nine to five every day or nine to six, however long he was, but he never came home midday because he couldn't be inspired. He would always write, even if it's bad. And that's what I encourage all of my writer, writers is that even bad writing is a starting place. Mm, true. Even the, the stuff that you have to end up throwing away most of it is a beginning. And so my husband would come home and he said, yeah, I wrote 10 pages today, but you know, it wasn't very good, but we'll do it again tomorrow. And it was always a good starting place. He never gave up. And that taught me a lot about the commitment to writing and commitment to yourself to follow through with what you say you're going to do. Yeah, that's crucial. And I love the way you have these steps because you even create this a contract yes. to yourself. That's a very powerful way of committing. Do they take seriously some of the people that you work with? Very much so. Very much so. I had one of my writers is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she is a speaker. Uh, she does a lot of work 
with women. And she was invited to speak at a very big conference. And she said, Sandy, I want to have my book for that conference. I want that to be my calling card. And the problem is, is that it's less than a year from now. So that was the perfect reason to implement the contract. And she started in February and she wanted to have the book finished by October 18th of that year. And you know that her books arrived October 18th of that year. It's so bizarre. Shivana is her name. She wrote a book called The Emerging Healer. And it was the most remarkable thing because I saw how she stuck to her contract. And and if she didn't write one day because things got in the way, then she would add on writing to the next day. She would make it um, make up for it. And yeah, she stuck with the contract. Now, I had one writer recently that it took about a year longer than she wanted it to, but she had a lot of things come up for her. The book was very difficult to write because it was a very painful time in her life. And we felt that we needed to give her license to um, defer it a little bit so that she could just take a breath in between some of the chapters. But they were very calculated breaths. They weren't going to last forever. We would say, okay, take a month off. And, and then go back. And then, but she maintained her contract with herself. And, you know, that's the thing that I love telling people is that um, you don't, in your job, you don't break contracts with people. So why would you break a contract with yourself? Mm-hmm. Can't allow yourself to break your own personal contracts. Yeah. Talk to me for a moment about resilience. What is resilience? And what are some strength and practices of resilient people, Sandy? Uh, Another good question. Well, I define resilience as the ability to not just bounce back, but bounce forward. And that means taking your experience that maybe threw you to the ground, drop you to your knees, whatever happened in your life, the ability to bounce forward means that you take whatever experience you had, and it gives you um, a life-altering perspective that now you have to recognize as part of your life and something that you have to take forward into your life. But the effect of it is the perspective that you have. How will you treat it in your life? And so bouncing forward means becoming an even stronger version of yourself than you ever imagined. And I can tell you, I'm, I can name so many women that I've worked with who are stronger than they ever imagined. And it's really, resilience is something that is now being talked about so much more, but it's, it's the prescription basically for restoring the soul's potential, the potential that you have to regenerate. You know, when you, when you see that tiny little seedling that got caught in the crack of cement and somehow it's growing a beautiful little flower, that's resilience. Well, look at the number of people that will tell you what they've been through and how it made them stronger. And I am always in awe of those stories that people have. Yeah. So resilience is in a way the ability to see opportunities within challenges. Right. 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 I think that's a good way to put it because it's the opportunity. And I mean, we all wish sometimes that we could go back and change the way things were, but that's not humanly possible. So how do we learn to accept them and move forward? And I know it's not easy. And I'm, I, there are so many things that I still would love to be perfect at, you know, (laughs) the fact is, is that I just continue to renew my faith in myself every day and say, you got this, you can do this, you know, keep, keep going, keep going. And I think there are some resilience, uh, people have certain traits of resilience that, um, that make them stronger. And one of them is perpetual optimism and I really like waking up in the morning thinking that I have this day in my hands. It's up to me. And that seems to work for me. 
it works for all of us, but it takes practice and awareness, <laughs> right, Sandy? It sure does. And wake yeah. up with this state of mind. And that resilience makes me think about transformation too, the ability to transform. I think that transformation comes from looking at the life you've lived and who you are today. And you can see that transformation. One of the things that I learned in my, as I was studying grief recovery um, for my certification was they, they take you through a loss history graph and you have an opportunity to look at all of the experiences that you've had in your life that might be categorized as loss. And a lot of people don't realize things that might be really uh, a positive experience can also be a negative experience. Like if you, um, uh, for instance, I moved um, 12 times in 12 years when I was a young girl because my father was in the Navy. And I can look at that and remember just always being so exhausted by being the new girl in class and how hard it was to make new friends. But then I can also look back on that time and say, it's one of the reasons why I make friends easily and why I love to travel and why I love different cultures and I love learning about people and I love stories of people. <laughs> and so, you know, I can look back on that and say as it, that was a loss because it is really hard as a child. It can trigger grief reaction, but if you recognize it as that and then and then work within that and and gain a new perspective, it makes it so much easier to um, see the gifts in the things that were difficult. Yeah, that's another beautiful word to use, the gift, yeah, in everything. So we're almost at the end. I have a few more questions for you. I call them final questions. Would you like to add anything or read a passage in one of your books, Sandy? You know, I think the thing that I'd like to really impress upon people is that if life throws you a curveball, that it's not time that will heal you. It's the efforts that you put forth every day that will bring you to a new place in your life. And so many people would say to me, oh, you know, after I lost my son, give it time, time heals all wounds. But it really wasn't the time that healed me, it was the process. So if you can be patient with yourself about the process of the difficult times that you're going through and observe what the lessons are, I think that you can look back on your life in the years ahead and say, wow, I survived that. That is so amazing. And we all have that ability to survive. And it's not always easy. But as I said before, take your friends with you, surround yourself with positive people, surround yourself with people that will hold you up when you can't hold yourself up. Mm, yes, that's crucial. I agree. And I love the word you use, survive, in that being a victim. That would be the negative way of yes, seeing it. Oh, perfect description. Yes, that would be the negative way of looking at it. Right. How do you define success? What is to be successful these days to you? Well, I used to think I knew what success was, but I don't know anymore. <laughs> wow. You know, I think we're being challenged in this time to define what success is. And right now, when things are up in the air with jobs and, you know, what is going on with health and everything, I think for me, success means that I'm connecting with clients that I really love working with. And I used to just take all clients. And now I'm being more discerning and looking at the clients that make me feel like I'm successful at what I'm doing. And that is helping them move forward. And so for me, success means that I'm doing the job that I should be doing with the people that I should be doing it with. And for that I will be financially compensated and spiritually compensated. And that's a great feeling. Wow. I love that. Spiritually compensated. Yes. Never heard it that way. <laughs> yeah. I heard the other day, spiritual freedom. 
That was an interesting Oh, term beautiful. Yeah. yeah, I like that. What is another word for healing? Oh, I think acceptance. Because it doesn't mean that you have to look at what happened to you and be okay with it happening. It just means that you accept it and you decide how you're going to move forward. You accept that it happened to you and now it's your responsibility to figure out life beyond that difficult time. And that's a hard thing to do, but we look at so many people who do it day after day and admire them. And I just, as I said, I'm I, my whole life I've loved stories, stories of people. And mostly I read nonfiction and I read biographies and I love stories of how people have survived. And I think healing and survival are hand in hand and it takes active steps to recover. Mm, active. Actively, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you've been saying this yeah, throughout the conversation about creativity and resilience. It's not easy, but if we make that choice, if we commit, then we'll be simpler to get there. I think it's more about being simple than wanting it easy. Although I do believe that life can flow easily too. But I don't know how easy. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's a good question, Valeria. I think... Um, because life isn't easy right now for a lot of people. And I certainly include that thought in my thoughts daily about, I'm, I'm very fortunate that um, I'm in my home and I feel safe here. And right now I know that's being challenged in many areas and I wish I could do more. I really do. I wish I had all the answers and I wish I could do more and I wish I could be more aware. And But what I know I can do is I can write my story. I can tell people what I've been through and how I survived. And that's my part of sharing. That's my part of contributing is saying, you're not alone. You know, other people have been through some tough experiences and I hope that I can help you understand through mine. And so that's why I continue to write. And um, I write a, a blog on medium.com and that's where I have a huge part of my audience. I'm so grateful for that. And and I'm just, um, I just want to keep writing because I know that for me, it, it's what I should be doing. If you knew you would die soon, meaning leaving the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? You know, I don't think so. I think that I have my days exactly where I want them right now. And like my friend said, who had lost her husband that I spoke about earlier, she said the most important thing to her was being present. And that's something that I try to work on every day. And I'm not always perfect at it, but I sure am trying. And at least I set that as my goal to be present every day. And uh, so I think that would be, I think I'm living the life that I should be living. Really beautiful to hear that. I love what he said now, too. So it's not about perfection or being perfect, but being present. Uh-huh. Yeah, I love that, too. Oh, that just sparked a thought. What I realized is that working that I, oh, who was the guy that wrote the book on happiness? It was uh, Sean Acor. And he said, happiness was striving for your potential. And I think if you're striving for your potential every day and being present with what that potential is, is that that is happiness. And I loved his description of it because never am I more excited than when I'm writing a blog or writing a book or even being on an interview with you. I was so excited to wake up today and know that I got to do this today because it's part of being in alignment with what I love to do. What are three things about life you know for sure as of now? I know for sure. Oh, good question. I know for sure that love never dies. I've had it demonstrated so many times in my life. So even when a person is gone, that love grows. 
I know for sure that we're all resilient and we have the capability of being resilient. We just have to wake it up and recognize it, that we have that potential within us. It's in our DNA. And the third would be about creativity. I know for sure that everyone is creative and part of living to our highest potential is tapping into the creative mind and using it every day for for the choices that you make. Thank you so much for your wisdom, profound wisdom, your beautiful presence, happy, peaceful presence. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandy. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Oh, wonderful. I am at sandypeckinpah.com. And I, I have lots of blogs on that website. I also have the coaching that I do with women on helping them write their books and also teaching people how to write blogs. A lot of people are enjoying what blogs have to offer in visible presence on the internet and the way it makes them feel being able to share their mission and their story. And so all of that is on the website. And then I'm also on a a regular writer on medium.com and on Thrive Global, Ariana Huffington's platform on the personal development and uh, sometimes in Huffington Post, but not lately, just mostly Thrive Global and medium.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Cindy, and we'll talk soon. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Sandy Peckinpah and her work, please visit sandypeckinpah.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.